0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Newsmen were clamoring for information about the remains in Lincoln County and speculating if they were really those of Brooke Wilbergers. On September twentieth, two 2006, they got their answer. The bones and skull were those of a young man. An examination by Deputy State M.E., Larry Lumen, as well as other items found at the scene, pointed to a young man who had committed suicide by hanging himself. No foul play was suspected. One more possible sighting of Brooke had once again come up empty. From the Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott. Feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. cozy. Well, hello, Murder Bookies. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome to Episode 58, Second Cast, It's Darkest Before Dawn, Part 3 of The Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott. I wanted to wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day. Spring is almost here, and I am so ready. All right, this might seem obvious, but this is the third part of a trilogy. So to understand what's going on, you want to binge episodes 56 and 57 before you listen to this one. And this one includes all the updates on the so many victims that could have been tied to Joel Courtney. It's now a year after Brooke Wilberger was abducted on May 24th, 2004 from the Oak Park Apartments parking lot. And we've met a number of suspects, including Soon Koo Kim and Aaron James Evans. Then a phone call changed everything. A new suspect came in from out of the blue in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right? We're in Oregon. Like, what could Albuquerque have to do with this? 22 year old Natalie Kirov was kidnapped and sexually assaulted by one, Joel Courtney. Due to some exemplary police work by Albuquerque PD, Corvallis PD and the Oregon State Police were made aware of Joel Courtney, a former Oregon resident. After two years of malingering and delaying, Joel Courtney accepted a plea deal in the Natalie Kiroff case and was sentenced to 18 years. It was time for Joel Courtney to stand trial for the Brooke Wilburbur murder, but Joel fought extradition tooth and nail. I know you're shocked. But that wasn't the only battle heating up. The Oregon media desperately wanted information on the Wilberger case, and normally the arresting affidavit is made public. But without a body, DA Scott Heiser feared the case would be compromised if it was released. Incensed, the media pressed and pressed, whining and whining, causing all kinds of legal shenanigans. Finally, Judge Locke Williams ruled that the documents would remain sealed due to the, quote, risk of interfering with the state's ongoing investigation of this and other crimes that may have been committed by Mr. Courtney, End quote. But the chorus began. Wait, what other crimes? What other crimes? This propelled the media to look into cases that could possibly be earlier Courtney homicides, finding four. The disappearance of Catherine Scott Eggleston of Portland, called Katie by everybody. Katie was born May fourth, 1971, to parents Paul and Heather, and 22-year-old Katie grew up in Redmond, Oregon. She was of medium height, blonde hair, blue eyes, pretty, an athlete, having excelled on her high school swim team. Having a ton of friends, Katie was described as, quote, very outgoing, someone that people were drawn to. She was always joking and wanted to go do things, end quote. Security conscious. Katie was aware of her surroundings, carried a whistle, and had taken self-defense classes. Just recently, she had taken a job with All Net Communication Services in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Staying with her sister, Janet Taylor, in Gresham, about 30 minutes from Portland, Katie also attended OSU. She'd spent the weekend visiting her boyfriend, and on Monday, August 2, 1993, Katie left work, upbeat, enthusiastic. It was her first day in the Portland All Net office by herself. Although it was warm, Katie wore a purple blazer, white blouse, black skirt, and heels. I suspect the air conditioning in her workplace was working really, really well. First up, Katie had a sales meeting, and then she headed to various businesses along Portman's Whitaker Way, stopping at a bank, a gas station, and a Burger King. That afternoon, she made more work calls from the port of Portland building, and witnesses described her as having a worried expression on her face. At around 2:15 p.m., a customer of Katie saw her get off the building's elevator with a man with a dark complexion, dark hair, and wearing a blue blazer. This was the last time anyone saw Katie Eggleston. At 5 p.m., Katie's silver Volkswagen Golf was noted in the port of Portland building parking lot. At some point It was driven away. Yet Katie missed her 5 p.m. meeting with her supervisor in the Lake Oswego office. When Katie didn't show up at her sister's, Janet was ticked off at first, but gradually grew alarmed. The next day, Janet told her dad Katie was missing, with Paul Eggleston heading to Portland. Meanwhile, on Northeast Airport Way, a security guard noticed Katie's car, which had been there from the wee hours of the morning, with windows open. The door's unlocked, key in the ignition. Now we all know that's not right, and it gets worse. Her purse, wallet, and money were on the front seat. Her workout clothes in the back. Her all binder was nowhere to be seen. From this first day, Paul Eggleston kept a journal of what transpired, and this is really a good idea, given the intense emotion and days blurring one into the next. August 5th, he made a notation that Katie's boyfriend had joined the search, but quote, displayed exceptionally strange behavior, end quote. Paul was aware that Katie planned to break up with him, and apparently that had happened over her visit that past weekend. He confessed to Paul that when Katie broke up with him, he quote, wigged out, end quote. But the boyfriend's alibi was sound. He really wasn't the guy. To stress the parents out even more, the lead detective, Joe Goodale, told Paul and Heather that the department was horribly overworked, having three murders occurring in three days in a row. Well, that is just what you want to hear when your child goes missing, that the police are overworked. Well, dogs were brought in, but found no trail indicating where Katie had gone. Sounds to me like she'd been forced into another vehicle, which then drove away. Then Paul Eagleston wrote that the investigation ran off into the gutter, Detective Wagner, who was on the case, demanded to know why Paul and Heather had held back information. While having no clue what she was talking about, Paul asked for clarification, and Detective Wagner demanded to know why they hadn't told her that their daughter Janet's ex-husband was facing a trial on tax evasion. Quote, Paul was floored and said that had nothing to do with Katie's present circumstances. In return, Detective Wagner responded, You mean to tell me you don't see the connection between a trial for a felony and a key witness disappearing? And then Detective Wagner implied that the Egglestons were hiding Katie somewhere so she could not testify. Detective Wagner point blank asked Paul, do you know where Katie is? No, he replied. Would you be willing to take a lie detector test? Yes, he responded with anger, end quote. All right, what a mess. Trust is completely eroded on both sides of this equation, and I do wonder if Detective Wagner was suffering from investigative stress and burnout, given the comments from Detective Goodale about the three murders in three days. All right, regrouping. Paul wrote Detective Wagner a letter, paraphrasing this now. It was distressing to think that their former son-in-law could have anything to do with Katie's disappearance. But the trial was over $90,000 in unreported business income. And while Katie was a witness, her contribution was minimal. It wasn't even a blip on the radar to Katie, who was focusing on her new job. Then came Paul's second letter, and this time his anger shone through. How could Detective Wagner even think he and his wife would hide Katie and ruin their reputations for an ex-son-in-law they hadn't seen or spoken to in years? And the lie detector test? Paul passed, and the police accepted this as exonerating Paul Eggleston of having any knowledge about Katie's disappearance, or so they said. Katie's disappearance was still Detective Wagner's case, and the Egglestons still had to deal with Detective Wagner, so vice versa, this isn't the greatest relationship. Wagner informed Paul that the working theory was here we go that Katie had disappeared of her own accord. Just utterly disgusted, the Egglestons hired a private investigator, a retired Oregon state trooper. A few leads were looked into, and he did do his job, but nothing panned out. Then, on October 12, 1993, the same day daughter Janet was ordered to home detention and probation on the tax case, Detective Wagner announced to the media that Katie had absented herself to avoid testifying. There were no signs of struggle near the car in the city parking lot, and Katie's passport was missing. Oh boy! In abject disbelief, Paul then told the media that not once has Katie's room in their home been searched, and if the police had, they'd see her medication, makeup, clothes, suitcases were all still there. As far as the passport, Heather Eggleston explained that Katie had needed it to verify her identity for Allnet just a few weeks before she vanished. The passport may have made its way into Katie's missing all-net binder, and nothing indicated that Katie had used the passport to leave the country in 1993 or 1994, and the case went cold. That is, until Jill Courtney popped into law enforcement's radar. The FBI visited the Egglestons, getting their DNA and explaining the parallels between Natalie, Brooke, and Katie's abductions. Could they say that Courtney definitely did it? Absolutely not. But Katie's parents needed to be informed. And all right, this is well done. If I'm going to be critical, I will also give kudos when warranted. But this did not pan out either. Katie's case remains unsolved. If you know anything or think you might, however insignificant to you, you can contact the Cold Case Homicide Unit 503-823-0400. To remain anonymous, tips can be sent to Crime Stoppers of Oregon who offer cash rewards up to $2,500 for information reported to them that leads to an arrest in any unsolved felony crime. You can remain anonymous. Call 503-823-HELP. That's 4357. You can also visit the App Store and download P3 Tips to Submit a Secure and Anonymous Tip. Of course there's an app, right? You can also report it online, and there is a link on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. So if you know anything, it is time to report it. The second case that law enforcement suspected Courtney might be involved with was the missing person case of Stephanie Condon. Living in Myrtle Creek, Oregon, which is about two hours south of Corvallis, in 1998, Stephanie was 14 years old. She fit Courtney's preferred victim profile: petite, blonde, blue-eyed, and pretty. October 30th, Stephanie was babysitting for her cousin Cheryl Ritchie's twins in Riddle, Oregon, when she just up and vanished. Stephanie was wearing Winnie the Pooh PJs when last seen. Cheryl Ritchie returned home around 1:30 a.m and the door was locked. She found her kids tucked in bed asleep, house undisturbed. There was no indication that anything was wrong, just no Stephanie, save for her shoes and backpack, which were still in the house. Had she left in the middle of the night with no shoes? Had she been kidnapped at the front door? Like many kids, Stephanie had a favorite blanket, only it was gone too. And the question was, had she been incapacitated, wrapped in her blankie, And taken away, the FBI offered a $10,000 reward for any information on Stephanie's disappearance. Tips poured in, and as with the Brooke Wilberger case, psychics offered insights and help. One said Stephanie was dead, buried near the Tri-City, Oregon radio station transmitter. There was a group, the Hawaiian Remote Viewers Guild, who clairvoyantly view what occurs outside of their physical presence. They conducted a double-blind remote viewing. That is, the viewers and monitors and analysts have no idea who the subject was and hadn't ever heard of Riddle, Oregon, a town of a thousand people. A viewer named Rosie saw that the target was deceased, likely killed by a bearded man, and buried in an isolated area of heavy vegetation in the Northwest United States. All right, that's intriguing. With a whole planet to pick from, Rosie located near Oregon, but the case just meandered on with little fits and starts. In 2003, a new specialized searching group of investigators from the UK, the National Crime and Operations Faculty, began to work on the case. Pam Frank from the Douglas County Sheriff Department explained, quote, These people from the UK, this is their job. They have great success. They do searches, and not once in a while when a child comes up missing, but it's something they do every day, end quote. The oldest case this team had cracked had gone unsolved for 23 years. The searchers surveyed from above. They cut brush back to where it would have been five years ago and deployed ground-penetrating radar looking for soil disturbances. British officer Mark Harrison said, quote, the speed at which the beam bounces back will actually tell us whether there are human remains there or whether it's just a rock, End quote. Any abnormalities were noted and stored in a database for further excavating. And Harris also brought in special scent-trained cadaver dogs. Now here comes another twist. In the UK, On June 27, 2003, the Bedford Times published an article, Body Found Stephanie Condon. It was quite detailed that Bedfordshire resident Mark Harrison found the remains wrapped in a bed cover and included a statement by Harrison on how delighted he was to be able to help the Condon family. A suspect was looking for someone but found Stephanie instead drunkenly mistaking her. Stephanie had been taken back to his residence at gunpoint, raped, killed, and dumped in the woods. Well, closure, right? Yeah, but this all wasn't true. Like, what the hell? The local detectives were gobsmacked as to why anyone would pull such a prank. Just somebody making a joke? Had this been done by the killer? And the super-duper searchers did not find Stephanie as the years rolled by. Then, Joel Courtney became a suspect, reigniting the FBI to examine the Stephanie Condon case. Doing their due diligence, they concluded that Joel likely did not murder Stephanie Condon. But a decade later, in 2009, a man walking his dog on a logging road stumbled upon a human skull near the town of Glide, about 30 minutes from Riddle, and it was Stephanie's. This spurred the Douglas County Sheriff's Office to arrest the man who had been a suspect in the case since the beginning, Dale Wayne Hill. The night Stephanie went missing, Cheryl was at a tavern with a friend when acquaintance Dale Wayne Hill came over and mentioned he'd stopped by Cheryl's house earlier that night. All right, this meant that Hill was probably the last one to see Stephanie alive. A theory emerged that Hill killed Condon in retaliation against her aunt, Cheryl Ritchie. And a month afterward, Dale Wayne Hill was arrested for burglary and stealing women's panties. Yes, another one, another panty thief. You cannot make this stuff up. He pled no contest and was sentenced to six years. Meanwhile, police were assessing the evidence against Hill who made a number of confusing statements about that night. He said he left a Canyonville bar, driving three minutes or so up the road, to use a bathroom at another place, and then turned around and returned to the Canyonville bar. All right, why would you do that? Nobody does that. Hence, spiking police suspicions. Then a month after Stephanie disappeared, Hill left a message on Detective Joe Perkins' phone That ended with him saying, "Quote, tell Stephanie's parents," and click, end quote. As he hung up, Hill then took an overdose, trying to commit suicide. Arrested for Stephanie's murder, the trial began in March 2011, with the prosecutor suggesting sexual assault as the motivation, and urged the jury to use common sense to link the circumstantial evidence. The defense argued. That there was no forensics at all tying Dale Wayne Hill to the crime. And the jury agreed with the defense. April 2nd, 2011, they acquitted Dale Wayne Hill of Stephanie Condon's murder. Hill was elated and the prosecution and family devastated. Well, without a fiber or a fingerprint, a hair, I mean, no forensics. It is a tough case to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. In 2000, Riddle dedicated a large stone in Riddle Park that bears a bronze plaque, which reads, quote, dedicated to all missing children in the honor of Stephanie Condon, end quote. Now, two years later, Stephanie's dad, Marty, he died of a self inflicted gunshot wound. And some speculate that he just missed Stephanie too much to continue on. Oh dear. The third case that was possibly linked to Courtney was the murder of Leah Freeman in Coos County, Oregon on June 28, 2000. 15-year-old Leah had been dropped off that afternoon at a friend's Sherry Mitchell's house in Coquille, Oregon. Leah's boyfriend, Nick McGuffin, was to pick her up around 9 p.m. All right, what a prophetic name. However, Leah and Sherry got into a fight over the amount of time Leah was spending with Nick versus spending time with Sherry. Not an unusual argument between teenage friends with boyfriends. Angry, Leah stormed off, leaving Sherry's to walk home. And she never made it. I'll tell you, the intuition that mothers have is amazing. Leah's mom, Corey, woke up around 3 a.m. and went to make sure that Leah was in bed. Finding it empty, calling the police, a search began. The police, of course, spoke with Nick McGuffin, who had told them that when Leah wasn't at Sherry's, he had driven around with friend Kirsten Steinhoff to see if they could find her. Later, Nick told Twenty Twenty that driving past Leah's house, quote, I saw a glare on her window and thought it was her TV, end quote. Him assuming that that meant Leah was home. Remember, this is 2000, so before texting and cell phones were everywhere, he really couldn't have gotten in touch with her. Police had witnesses who saw Leah at McKay's market, at a restaurant, a gas station, and a credit union that is now City Hall. And then a mechanic came forward. He had just gotten off work, was on his motorcycle heading home, and he spotted a Nike tennis shoe in the middle of the road. And according to Coos County District Attorney, Paul Frazier, he, quote, got upset because he just bought his kids new shoes and thought it might be one of his kids. So he picked it up and brought it home. When he got home, he figured out it wasn't one of his kids shoes and tossed it into the pile, end quote. When news reports on Leah Freeman's disappearance began, the mechanic realized the sneaker might be important and came forward. DNA on the sneaker matched Leah Friedman's A week later, a second Nike of Leah's was found alongside a local road, splattered with blood. Now, this tells me her abductor was chucking her belongings out the window as he drove to dispose of them. Police deduced from this that Leah had been abducted between 9 p.m. and 11.40 p.m. And then, sadly, on August 3rd, Leah's body was discovered, about 12 miles or 9 kilometers away, down a steep embankment in the woods near Fairview, and she had been strangled. And this took a terrible toll on the Freeman family. Leah's dad had a heart attack, leaving an already distraught Corey shattered. Investigating, police issued warrants for the MacGuffin house, for Nick's parents and Nick's car, but nothing was found. The police issued search warrants for Nick's best friend's car and his house as well. Still nothing. In July, Nick took a lie detector test, failing when he asked if he was involved in Leah's disappearance. And there, the case stalled, with lack of evidence, stymieing further investigation. Now, in late 2009, so this is almost 10 years later, Coquiel PD created a cold case unit applying the latest technology. And on August 23, 2010, the grand jury returned an indictment of Nick McGuffin for the murder of Leah Freeman. The trial began in 2011, and the jury found Nick not guilty of murder charges, but voted 10 to 2 to convict Nick McGuffin of manslaughter, sentencing him to 10 years in prison. Okay. All right. Interesting fact. Oregon does not require unanimous jury decisions. I did not know this was possible. This stems from a 1934 case where Jacob Silverman was charged with the first-degree murder of Jimmy Walker. During deliberations, the jury was stuck at 11 to 1 for guilty of premeditated murder. Unable to persuade the one juror, they found Silverman guilty of manslaughter, unleashing a torrent of protest over the lesser verdict. The Secretary of State of Oregon wanted to amend the state's constitution to, quote, prevent one or two jurors from controlling the verdict or causing disagreement, results that can be costly to taxpayers and can cause congestion in the courts, end quote. This amendment was approved by a vote of 58% of Oregonians, and I found out that Louisiana is the only other state where non-unanimous verdicts are permitted in the United States. Absolutely fascinating, had no idea. But the Freeman case wasn't over. Janice Paracall of the Oregon Innocence Project became McGuffin's attorney. Reviewing all the evidence, it came to light that there was unidentified male DNA on Leah Freeman's sneaker, and it did not match Nick. Presenting this to Judge Patricia Sullivan, she ruled that the Oregon State Police Lab violated McGovern's constitutional rights by failing to disclose the existence of this DNA. Further, there was a, quote, reasonable probability that McGuffin's guilty verdict would have been different if the presence of the unknown man's DNA was disclosed, end quote. Conviction overturned, Nick was released from prison in December 2019. Goose County DA Joe Frazier declined to try McGuffin again. Now, this is an important note. Judge Sullivan also said, quote, This is not a case where the district attorney deliberately withheld exculpatory information. Rather, the material from the OSP lab provided information in its report that created a false impression that no other DNA was found on the shoes, end quote. Frazier explained what happened in the lab in 2000. Quote, because the DNA profiles were so small, it was hard for lab technicians to know if it was actually a profile or what is called background noise or clutter. The scientists running the test had discretion to say, yes, it's there or no, it's background noise and ignore it. The lab scientists saw it as background noise and didn't put it in the report, end quote. So that is really key to understanding what happened here. Nick McGuffin is suing. He filed a federal civil rights complaint as he is working to cope with his anxiety, build a relationship with his daughter, who was only three years old when he was incarcerated, and he's trying to resume his career as a chef. I wish him well, and I want all of these cases solved. With the actual bad guys in a cell. Now that brings us to the final possibly linked case presented in last time we saw her. This is a case from the college town of San Luis Obispo, California, who fit Courtney's M.O. It's the 1996 murder of Kristen Denise Smart, a student at California Polytech State University who is majoring in architecture. And May comes up a lot in this story. On May 25th, Kristen and friend Margarita Campos attended an off-campus fraternity party till like 1.30, 2 a.m. Bored, Margarita gave Kristen her dorm key and headed out. She would insist that Kristen was sober when they parted. What exactly happened to Kristen, we can only guess. Either she became rather intoxicated very quickly, or perhaps she was given a date-rape drug, we just don't know. But unable to stand on her feet, another friend, Cheryl Anderson, began helping Kristen back to her dorm. 19 year old Paul Flores offered to walk with them. And when they came to the intersection at Perimeter Road and Grand Avenue, a reluctant Cheryl went her way, and Flores assured her he'd get Kristen home. She never got there. Where was Kristen? Her key, wallet, purse, all remained in her Muir Hall dorm. Two days passed. Donning a black eye, Paul Flores said the last time he'd seen Kristen had been on Grand Avenue. But his story about the black eye kept changing. First, it was from playing basketball. Then it was working on his truck. Then he hid his face on the steering wheel, fixing his car stereo. Right? The guy's a klutz, evidently. He later told a friend, quote, I just woke up with it. I don't know how I got it, but it would be pretty stupid to tell the police that, end quote. Kristen's sister, Lindsay Smart, observed that Paul also had scratches on him. All right, that's a red mountain to me. Come on now. Obviously, Kristen hadn't left voluntarily. With it being Memorial Day weekend, processing the missing person report was slow, and Kristen's parents were incensed. Later, the police admitted the four-day lag and starting to delve into the case hurt the investigation. Paul Flores became the main suspect as cadaver dogs went through his dorm, the dog making a beeline for Paul's bed. Three other dogs would have similar reactions. Paul invoked the Fifth Amendment, which is his right, and he remained silent. Offered a plea deal, he would agree to admit guilt for involuntary manslaughter charges, but Paul refused. When presented with evidence, a grand jury did not indict. But remember, never get fixated on one possible suspect. The authorities continued to delve. And in 2005, Courtney's name came up. But by February 2006, the FBI eliminated Courtney as a suspect in the Kristen Smart case. Now, if you love true crime, as I do, you know that on April 12th, 2021, Paul Flores was finally arrested for the murder of Kristen Smart 25 years later. Partially responsible for this was a podcast, In Your Own Backyard, by Chris Lambert, who I admire greatly. Definitely give it a listen. Chris Lambert filed the case for years, organizing information in his podcast, which has been listened to by millions. Lambert found witnesses the police hadn't and kept the case in the public eye. And then finally in April, a search warrant resulted in prosecutor Chris Prevreil saying, quote, the excavation below his deck at 710 White Court showed damning evidence that a body had been buried in that location and then recently moved. End quote. Paul Flores was charged with first-degree murder, and his father, Ruben Flores, charged as an accessory. In a joint trial with separate juries, which I learned is a thing, and you can actually hear more about this on the Prosecutor's Legal Briefs podcast, episode eight. Don't you love Alice and Brett? I love them. Anyway, Paul Flores was found guilty, and his father Ruben acquitted. Paul was due to be sentenced in early December 2022, but it was rescheduled to March 10th, 2023, and I'm recording this prior. So expect a minicast update for you on Paul Flores' sentencing. His attorney, Robert Sanger, is working on an appeal. At trial, Robert Sanger suggested that Scott Peterson, you know, the guy who murdered his wife Lacey and unborn son Connor, who was attending Cal Polytech at the time, Peterson killed Kristen. I am not buying that one, Robert. So anyway, Joel Courtney did not kill Kristen Smart. But I do not blame law enforcement for proactively examining every possible suspect. All right, what a book. It is also incredibly relevant to this very second. Now, you didn't forget about Sung Kim, did you? Kim's fifth attorney, Clayton Lance, managed to work out a plea deal with all three Oregon counties. Kim pled guilty to multiple burglary and panthe theft charges. Kitty porn, and was sentenced to over 11 years, according to the Albany Democratic Herald. His father, Zhu Kim, said, Sung Kul was, quote, mentally ill and had a hard time in prison. He spent most of his time in his cell with another inmate who was also mentally ill. Dr. Paul Leung, Sung's psychiatrist, said that Sung suffers from schizoaffective disorder, end quote. Well, I, ag- I agree. According to the Mayo Clinic, the symptoms of schizoaffective disorder vary from person to person, so it's like a disorder buffet. Psychotic symptoms, such as hallucination and delusions, occur, but other symptoms can be impaired or incoherent speech, bizarre, unusual behavior, or just acting out of character, depression, feeling empty, sad, worthless, intermittent mania with increased energy and not sleeping for days at a time. Key, Impaired social functioning at work, school, even family settings, and problems with cleanliness and physical appearance. So that's schizoaffective disorder. So, update on Sung Koo Kim. In November 2012, Kim was paroled after six years and placed in his parents' care and was on probation through 2016. A registered sex offender, he completed a sex offender treatment program, and other conditions that he must live with include. No access to a computer or internet, no access to minors or where children congregate, to keep 1,000 feet from college campuses and women's dormitory housing. All good moves. As reported by KATU ABC News, neighbor Carla Ernster said that she welcomed Kim home with open arms. Quote, he's definitely very sorry that happened. Very, very sorry. I truly don't have a hair on my head that is worried. Whether he's going to reoffend or steal panties, I really do not believe it. End quote. And Sunku Kim has not been in the news since that I could find, anyway. So good for him. Now, if you recall, the Kim family sued the state, claiming they were traumatized by the SWAT raid of their home and for being linked to the Wilberger case in 2008 the state paid a $331,000 settlement to the Kim family. At the time, an Oregon Department of Justice spokesman said that the state has decided to settle partly because of technical errors in the search warrant. I am reading that that could be the SWAT read. Now, what happened to possible suspect Aaron Evans? He and his wife, Michelle, separated, and she was living with a new boyfriend, and occasionally, Michelle let Aaron stay with them as long as he didn't bring meth heads into her home. That was a hard line for her, but that didn't go so well. Albany police officer Chad Barr was dispatched to Michelle's, and he found her with visible abrasions on her face. Aaron had beat her up when she objected to meth heads in her home. All right, I have zero tolerance for meth. You do what you want to do. It is a free country, but you will not be in my orbit. Judgy? oh, hell yeah, and I make no apologies. I am with Michelle on this one. Michelle had thrown the meth heads out with Aaron assaulting her and then running off. Investigating, Albany police officer Fandram was dispatched to look for Aaron. Shortly thereafter, he did spot him and Fandram's report reads, quote, suspect fled wearing a green backpack, hooded sweatshirt and jeans. Suspect fled from me West down the tracks, then south across them, and north again. He had something on his head. End quote. Then later at 11:30 p.m., the police were alerted that someone in a red jacket, baseball cap, was trying to break into a blue SUV. Officer Timothy Sousa drove into the area, spying a young man with a red jacket and baseball cap. Aaron Evans, arrested and handcuffed, Aaron was out of his twitchy mind. Aaron's story was. Oh, he'd looked into a few cars, but he wasn't trying to break into them. And Michelle had attacked him. Yeah, right. All right. Arrested for assault, it got worse. In jail, Aaron admitted to his parole officer that he'd smoked weed and had done a couple bowls of meth. Sanctioned for numerous parole violations, plus the new assault charge, Aaron's parole was revoked. And according to the Albany Democratic Herald, Evans wound up pleading guilty to the assault charge and public indecency. September twenty fifth, two thousand and nine, Aaron was sentenced to forty five months in prison, and his earliest release date was January second, twenty twelve. And with that, all of the early persons of interest in the Wilberger case were in jail, every single last one of them. Now, Joel Courtney. While all these legal shenanigans were going on in New Mexico, Cammie and Paul Wilberger were being proactive, setting up a scholarship in their daughter's name. To receive the Brooke Wilberger Scholarship, an applicant must be a graduating senior from Elmira High School who will attend public or nonprofit college or university. You must have a minimum 3.0 GPA. Preference is given to those with strong community service. And the 2023 scholarship application wasn't up at the time of this recording, but it's probably up there now, and I will have a link on my blog if you want to apply. As 2006 began to wane, DA Scott Heiser had a falling out with Judge Janet Holcomb and withdrew from the case. But beforehand, Scott filed motions to disqualify Judge Holcomb in nine other important upcoming trials, citing her bias against Benton County prosecutors. Now, that certainly might bias the judge against an attorney, but evidently this happened all the time in Oregon. John Haraldson now took over as the DA of Benton County, and he would prosecute Courtney. As 2006 turned into 2007, two more crimes were connected to Courtney. Courtney was indicted for attempted kidnapping and attempted murder of two women. Haraldson broke the news to reporters saying, quote, The evidence will show Courtney attempted to abduct them with the same method, but because of the way they reacted, they got away. They are very important witnesses in identifying Courtney and the van he was driving. End quote. We know these women are Diane Mason and Jade Bateman. December 12, 2007, a formal request for extradition was sent governor to governor with New Mexico fully cooperating to see it happen as quickly as possible. And by April, Courtney was in a cell in Corvallis, Oregon. February 2008, Courtney's new attorney, Stephen Ahrens, was in court. A seasoned defense attorney accustomed to difficult cases. (laughs) Even Courtney would tax him. Aarons had questions about the green minivan. It didn't belong to Courtney so someone else could have used it to kidnap Brooke Woolberger. April ninth, 2007. Courtney heard the 19 charges read in court. Held without bail, the charges included aggravated murder, first-degree rape, first-degree sexual abuse. Joel's defense team was now joined by death penalty experienced attorney, Stephen Krasick. I know, all these names. Oh my God, all the names. Wanting more information on the Kirov case, KGWTV began to vie with D.A. Harrelson, the rights of the press to information versus building a prosecutable case. With the press digging, Harrelson realized that the genie was out of the bottle and released a great deal of documents. With the public learning of Courtney's crimes in New Mexico, a new piece of information was unearthed. A U.S. Marshal's bloodhound had tracked Brooks' scent. To the southwest corner of 26th Street, and then onto Southwest Philomath Boulevard to an overpass less than a quarter of a mile from the East Park Apartments. So envision Brooke bound in the back of this minivan. All the rest of Joel's story came out his disappearing act at his sister's Portland home, going to the hospital with chest pains, abruptly moving to New Mexico, and his crazy kidnapping story. Media reported that DNA in Courtney's green minivan belonged to Brooke, as did trace evidence on the white rope, one end tied like a noose, the gray duffel bag, floor mats with her blonde hair. And now defense attorney Stephen Krasick was worried about his client's constitutional rights to a fair trial. He's afraid the jury pool is tainted. May 2008, Judge Locke Williams set a date for trial February 2010. I did not misspeak. We are talking 20 months from this point. Cami and Paul Wilberger were stunned. Patience ebbing almost two years away. This was two years away and delays could happen. So it could he be longer? So there was a lot of grumbling and a lot of debate about this. By July, rumors began floating around that the Wilbergers were in support of a plea deal being negotiated with Joel's defense. But problem, would Courtney actually let the plea be enacted? I mean, if you remember, Joel had tried to renege on his previous plea deal in New Mexico. Stephen Krasnick waded through a ton of documents. The amount of preliminary hearing trial prepped seemed enormous. Krasnick challenged Haroldson on Courtney wearing leg irons in front of the jury, while Haroldson argued that it was a death penalty case and shackles were a long-established part of Oregonian jurisprudence. Further, Haraldson also wanted the jurors to hear about Joel's conviction in the Kirov case, him not showing up in court on May 24, 2004, and Courtney's attempted rape of a teenager, Sue McDonald, in 1984. While rolling the Mason and Bateman cases into the Wilberger trial as one ginormous case, without a body, Harrelson knew he'd have to convince a jurors of guilt, and showing the jury the pattern of Courtney's assaults would do that. The vast majority of the state's case was based on the quote, "Defendant's propensity to act in a certain way may be used for other purposes, including proof of motive, opportunity." Intent, plans, and preparations. End quote. Now, this is still subject to interpretation by Judge Williams, who will decide what can and cannot be admitted to trial. So, quite a bit is riding on this. Knowing this, Harrelson enlisted the help of veteran prosecutor Karen Kemper with Natalie Kiroff's testimony before Judge Williams. Remember, this is still a preliminary hearing. Natalie provided details on Courtney's sexual abuse. And her harrowing escape. The defense asked no questions. Court clerk Nancy Joe Katner Mitchell testified about Joel's missed court date and his message saying he was in Corvallis. The audio tapes from May 24, 2004, from Judge Littlefield's court, was played, confirming Joel Courtney did not show up for court then or the next day. And when Joel never showed up, an arrest warrant was issued. OSU student Diane Mason testified next that she was cutting through the Oak Park apartment lot when a green minivan, driven by a man in his 30s, light hair and eyes, and a goatee with a hoop-type earring. He was lost in trying to find a fraternity with her giving directions. But the guy got out of his van, sliding open his side door, giving Diane the willies. She quickly walked away, feeling very vulnerable. Jade Bateman was next. A green minivan drove up, a man in his 30s, blondish hair, blue eyes and a goatee, asking for directions while she was chatting with her mom on the phone. Concerned for her safety, Jade was relieved when Bob Clifford, the athletic director, drove over, causing the man to drive off. Bob Clifford testified, quote, Halfway around the bend, I noticed one of our female student employees walking across the parking lot. I recognized her. She was a student manager in women's basketball. And then a green minivan pulled over and a man started talking to her. It just didn't seem like a normal situation to me. So I drove over and pulled up to the passenger side of the man's van and tried to get the driver's attention. He kept his hands attached to the steering wheel and would not acknowledge my presence. End quote. This man wore a baseball cap and sunglasses, and Bob noticed the van had Minnesota license plates. Lieutenant Philip Zerzin of the OSU Campus Police testified that he had provided assistance to the Corvallis PD as the Wilberger abduction occurred so close to the campus itself. On December 1, 2004, he and Corvallis's Lieutenant Kiefer came to the Rezzer Stadium parking lot with Zerzan pointing out where the vehicle sightings had occurred and stunningly recognized how close the lot was to the Oak Park apartments. Next, Lieutenant Kiefer testified, saying that Bob Clifford identified number three, Joel Courtney, in the photo array he'd been shown, pointing him out as the man in the van. Jade Bateman's mother also took the stand, saying her daughter had ordered her to stay on the phone with her. Jade had been so anxious about the man in the green van. And Diane, Jade, and Bob's testimony complimented each other. Officer Karen Strotter testified next. Defense co-counsel Steve Gorham had stressed that Ms. Bateman had spoken to the man in the van first, implying that the man driving the van couldn't have been that threatening if Jade had initiated and not run away. Karen Kemper redirected. Asking about Officer Strotter's training, which included, among many things, reading body language. Quote, Strotter replied that if someone were staring at her, that was a form of unspoken contact. End quote. The defense challenged Strotter's nonverbal expertise, and the exchanges went back and forth and back and forth. In the end, Strotter said, quote, Actions of people who are nonverbal are very important. A person driving slowly by you and staring at you is a prime example. In law enforcement, we're trained to watch someone's movements. We're trained to notice they are staring at us. A nonverbal thing like that cannot be ignored, end quote. When Jade saw the man in the car staring, she didn't greet him with a smile. It was because she was worried about her own safety. Always, always stay alert and be aware of your surroundings. This is probably why Jade Bateman and Diane Mason are alive. They trusted their gut. Brother-in-law Jesus Ordaz testified, telling his story of the First Communion and partying with Joel. Remember, the guys got home around 6.30 a.m. and were immediately in trouble with their wives? Ordaz phone records confirmed that Joel had called the Newton court, saying that he would be late for his DUI hearing. And when Joel left Jesus' house, he was driving a clean green CBM minivan. And when he returned later, on May 26, the van was dirty, with Jesus taking the initiative to clean it, not wanting unhappy bosses at work. And it went downhill from here for Joel. Women who had been sexually molested by Joel testified. Back in 1984, 18-year-old Susan McDonald was hanging out with some teens, Joel among them. Driving home one late night along an isolated road, he put his hand on Susan's leg. She objected, but he continued. She pulled over to get him to stop when he jumped on top of her, punching her in the face with his fist. Dragging her out of the car, he pulled down her pants, with Susan pleading to go back to their friend's home. She broke down crying, and it took some time to compose herself, finally convincing Joel to stop and that they should head home. And this was the genesis of Joel's previous sexual molestation conviction. Even more damaging was the testimony of Courtney's sister, Dina McBride. In the spring 1993, Dina and her husband were living near Multnomah, Rosie and Joel Courtney in an apartment nearby. A photo of Joel on Dina's wedding day showed his 1980s do, gelled spiky hair. And its importance would come later. Dina then recounted Joel's May 2004 visit to their grandmother's house, where Dina and her husband were living at the time. After lunch, Grandma wasn't feeling great and went to lie down. With Joel arriving around 11:45 a.m., animated and on edge, he launched into a convoluted story about being at a party and being kidnapped by guys with guns. Joel told her he was hiding in some bushes was naked part of the time in the rain and he was hungry and freezing. And then he spoke about a blonde girl and he, quote, mentioned blood and guns and knives. Someone had an automatic firearm and it was frightening. And then she died, end quote. Dina told the court, quote, it was a lot of information coming from Joel in a very disjointed manner, end quote. Karen Kemper asked what he had said about the girl, quote, he didn't give any specifics about short or tall or thin or fat. End quote. Just blonde. The next to testify was Sandy Vargas, sharing that she had a photographic memory or an eidetic memory. In 1993, Sandy was a slight 14-year-old runaway living on the streets in Portland. Going into a grocery store, Sandy stole a deodorant. Nervous, she knew a man in a long black coat had seen her. Going outside. Sandy sat on a bench, thinking that this guy must be cool because he hadn't turned her in. But then her heart sank when he came toward her. Sandy was afraid he was a security guard. Quickly leaving, she began walking, and the man in the same black coat drove up in a white car. He had a square face, bluish eyes, spiky blonde hair, and good teeth. He asked a few questions, and they exchanged names. He said he was Dave. Offering her a ride, he seemed really nice, but Sandy declined, telling him her parents were coming to get her. He drove off and she kept walking as if she was walking home. But then there was a noise behind her, and it was Dave, gun in hand, running up, wrapping this long black coat around her, saying they were going for a walk. Passing a couple people, Sandy stared at a woman with curly hair, trying to convey that she was in trouble. No luck. Turning a corner, the road they were on now was isolated, deserted, and his car was looming. At gunpoint, he forced her inside. They drove a short distance, where he parked, saying he wouldn't hurt her, and then asked her to take her clothes off. Crying, handcuffs came out, and he tried to put them on her, but Sandy refused, screaming, and she began praying out loud, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name," and then she prayed for him, Father. Forgive him for his sins because he knows not what he does. The guy began to freak out, gripping the steering wheel. Seeing the gun on his lap, Sandy testified, quote, God was speaking to me. God said, Get out of the car, not in a loud voice, but a quiet one. And I asked God when to do it. And he said, Now. End quote. Sandy did exactly that, opened the door and ran up the street and then down another. A few cars passed. None stopped, and she went into a cafe, peering through the windows as she saw his car driving back and forth, which terrified her even more. Sandy feared the guy was a cop. He had a gun and handcuffs, and who'd believe a kid? No idea what to do, Sandy spied the payphone, and she went over calling a friend. Her parents came to get her, and with their help, Sandy told the police what happened. Kemper showed Sandy. Dina Courtney McBride's 1993 wedding photograph. Was this the man? Sandy said, yes, the man in the photograph that forced her into the car, spiky-haired Joel Courtney. With the goal of consolidating the trials of Brooke Wilberger, Diane Mason, and Jade Bateman, closing argument was critically important for the prosecution. Kemper did a magnificent job of creating a timeline and connecting the dots. She stressed that it was the repetition and similarity of the acts that required one trial. Defense attorney Corum claimed the state was throwing mud at the wall, hoping some would stick, stressing the differences between the cases. Harrelson had the final word, however, and said they never claimed that this was a signature crime, that all the crimes were patterned exactly like the others. Quote, it boils down to this, this so-called mud is relevant it's incriminating evidence and it's not in the defendant's interest to have relevant incriminating evidence offered against him, end quote. Judge Locke Williams took this all in and went to make a decision. Judge Williams ruled the cases of Diane Mason, Jade Bateman, and Brooke Woolberger would be joined as they were, quote, similar in character and occurred within minutes of each other and within a remarkably limited geographic area, end quote. The testimony of Susan McDonald and Sandy Vargas, having occurred in 1985 and 1993 respectively, were too remote and would not be allowed at trial. The evidence about partying with Jesus Ordez, on Courtney's failure to appear in court, testimony by Diane Mason, Jade Bateman, and Bob Clifford were all allowed, and Courtney was about to make it even harder for his defense team of Krasnick and Gorham. July 21st, 2009, at the Benton County Jail, Joel met with psychiatrist John Sabatka, and went berserk, attacking and striking Dr. Sabatka with a fax machine and tearing up documents. More charges were filed against Courtney. With the attacks on Dr. Sabatka, coupled with Joel's comment back in New Mexico to Judge Martinez that he'd spit in his face, there was established a real danger of violence. Judge Williams ordered Courtney to wear a stun vest, any violent outburst, and he would get zapped. He could wear it under his clothing so jurors would not see it. Uh, is it wrong to want him to act up so he gets zapped? I don't know. Maybe, uh, mm, couldn't think of a better guy to get zapped though. Well, five years after Brooks abduction, the trial looked ready to begin, but predictably unpredictable on September 21st, 2009, Courtney decided he wanted a plea deal, withdrawing his not guilty plea. Joel signed the documents, acknowledging that quote, one, I know that if I pleaded guilty to the charge, I cannot challenge on appeal any of the trial court's earlier rulings in the case. Two, I agree to serve life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Three, I agree that my criminal history is accurately set for us in an attachment to the plea agreement, end quote. Notified, Diane Mason, Jade Bateman, and the Woolbergers were all in agreement and understood that the death penalty was off the table. But the concession For the prosecution to agree to this plea, Joel Courtney had to reveal where Brooke Wilberger's remains were. Haraldson told the media, quote, Joel Patrick Courtney had admitted he abducted, raped, and murdered Brooke Wilberger and left her in the woods. Her remains were recovered and confirmed with absolute certainty, and the Wilbergers could lay her to rest in a proper and honorable fashion, end quote. Brooke's fate. Joel said he was driving the green minivan trolling for a victim. He pulled it into the apartment parking lot, noticing Brooke working. Making a U-turn, he blocked the view of Brooke from the apartments. With a FedEx envelope in his hand, feigning being a delivery man, he said he was looking for an apartment, moving in on Brooke. Abducting her at knife point, he forced her into the van. She screamed, her flip-flops flying. Once in the van, he drove a short distance to McDonald's and Philomath, binding her with duct tape. Using cocaine, Joel walked in the woods with Brooke, trying to calm her down. At one point, he got hungry, tying Brooke up, and he went back to the McDonald's, buying them both food, returning to the forest. They spent the night in the van, and Brooke was still alive. He ran out of cocaine at some point, which made him irritable and unstable. And that morning he raped her. Brooke fought back, and her response was so strong he decided she had to die. Joel Courtney then bludgeoned her to death with a tree limb, striking her skull repeatedly. He concealed her body between a fallen log and covered it with ferns and moss. Hearing this, Cammie Wilberger came to the microphone before the reporters and TV crews. Breaking the silence, she said, quote, Thank you for being so supportive for the last five and a half years. It has been a long haul for all of us. Today, we are grateful. We are grateful to the law enforcement people who have searched so diligently for so long and who never gave up hope. And we are thankful for the district attorney's office and all of those who work so faithfully in that office. We feel a true closeness with them, and I appreciate so much their kindness to us and their willingness to keep us in the loop, end quote. She expressed gratitude for Courtney, too. A surprise to me that he was able to tell them where Brooke was and that justice had been served. Now, since these horrible events, in more recent years, Cammie and Greg have been enjoying their kids and their grandkids. They visit Brooke's grave before spending Memorial Day weekend together. And Cammie reflected, quote, I'll probably always remember what day it is. It's just one of those things. You heal, but there's a scar, which is not necessarily a bad thing. End quote. Over in the small town of Blodgett, Oregon, the hundred or so residents noticed when a swarm of law enforcement descended upon them, buzzing like worker bees. The location matched where psychic Bonnie Wells said that Brook would be found back in 2004. Shauna had actually gotten very close to where Brooks' remains were found. Another coincidence, this was very near the Vlogget Country Store, where person of interest, Lauren Kruger, parked donning a ski mask after his peeping tom episode. It struck me all these strands of the spider's web that ensnared so many in the Wilberger investigation intersecting. Vlogget Country store owner Mark Sakako told reporters Quote, that many of the residents of the area always thought that Brooke Wilberger's remains might be found back in that wild area. A couple of us actually searched that area, End quote. He added that life in prison was too good for Courtney. Courtney's sister, Dina McBride, sent a letter to the media revealing that once she and her husband learned of Jill's arrest, the wheels began turning as they asked themselves, quote, half-posed questions. Do you think he couldn't be involved with Soon as we heard the details of the case in New Mexico, we couldn't help but wonder at the similarities related to the disappearance of Brooke Wilberger. We talked. We tried to reconstruct events from several months earlier. We came up with a basic timeline. With dawning realization, we dreaded that there was a chance that Joel was somehow involved in the abduction a beautiful, vivacious, precious Brooke Wilberger. What do you do when you're faced with the thought that someone you love is capable of something so inexplicably evil? Into the early hours of the morning, we concluded that we would pray, sleep on it, and then if we felt there was any chance of Joel's involvement, we should contact law enforcement. As it turns out, we didn't have time. Law enforcement contacted us. Early December 2004, we began a working relationship between my mother, myself, and various law enforcement agencies involved with the pursuit of truth and justice for Brooke and her loving family. Our family has stood with the solid conviction that while we love Joel, we answer to God first and foremost, and would commit to making ourselves available to the pursuit of the clarification of facts and events. Our hearts continue to weep for the Wilberger family. We weep for Joel's family, two of whom are young children. When we learned the truth had been revealed and Brooke's body had been recovered, I wept. I am thankful the Wilberger family can have the resolution that they have so diligently sought. End quote. Oh, I feel for them. What a difficult situation and then trying to do the right thing. I just can't imagine. There is a link to Dina McBride's entire statement on my blog, at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, I hope we are sympathetic to the families put into these situations due to no fault of their own, and we can only pray they find peace. And my next book is a take on this journey, as you'll see. Courtney was transported back to New Mexico, where he will die in the high-security penitentiary, a supermax facility in the securest Level 4. October tenth, two 2009 was the final memorial service for Brooke Wilberger at OSU campus. Hundreds attended, and images of Brooke growing up, eyes shining, blonde hair wafing around her, flashed on the screen. So appropriately, Valerie Steig sang, I am a child of God. And that concludes my trilogy on The Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott. I felt we really got to follow the law enforcement investigation as it progressed step-by-step in this complex story. This book also gave me the opportunity to tell the stories of people who will likely never have a book written about their case, never have a podcast cover the crimes that altered and took their lives. I wanted to highlight them as I told Brooke's story. Diana Mason, Jade Bateman, and Bob Clifford, whose instincts allowed them to testify at Joel Courtney's preliminary hearing. Natalie Kiroff, Sue McDonald, and Sandy Vargas. Who helped put a monster behind bars. I also want to pay tribute to Dara Fink, who wasn't a bystander and stopped to help a stranger desperately in need outside that Mexican restaurant in Albuquerque. She is a hero in this story. There are also OSU women, Beth, Jenna, Whitney, Meredith, Lacey, Ashley, and Lindsay, who were victimized by a very mentally ill and dangerous man, who I pray has had help and is living a more productive life now. To Rachel and Michelle Evans, who had to deal with the aftermath of Aaron James Evans. And the victims of Lauren Krueger, whose trail tread across Bloggett County store, significant in locating Brooke's body. The coincidences are just really incredible. Told you to remember Bloggett. Teresa Garcia, Kimberly Lingard, Diana D. Jensen, who were victimized by suspect Richard Wilson. We can remember them now. May Teresa rest in peace. And Katie Eggleston, Stephanie Condon, and Leah Freeman. Though not attacked by Joel Courtney, they are remembered for being lovely women with so much promise snatched away. And Kristen Smart, whose killer was just confirmed by a jury in October 2022, 25 years later. This is why I podcast. This is one reason this book was so special, and I hope it met your expectations. And again, if you have any information on Catherine Katie Eggleston, contact information is on my blog, or call Crimestoppers 503-823-HELP-4357. At the beginning, I mentioned that I think that this is an uplifting story. And it is, from Brooke Wilberger herself to her family's faith and hope, even when faced with Brooke's death, the response of so many community groups pulling together, it lifted my spirit sharing this with you. Please let me know what you think. And my next book is She Married the Green River Killer, second edition, an exclusive authorized biography by Penny Wood. For some time, I've wanted to do something to highlight the impact that a serial killer has on his family, because their story is important, because they are the collateral victims of serial murder, and the struggle is real. That is this story. Judith is Gary Ridgway's third wife, whose early years were filled with neglect and abuse. And then she marries the man of her dreams, her Gary, who is also one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. Gary confessed to murdering 48 victims in a deal that spares him the death penalty. And I will be interviewing author Penny Wood, so stay tuned. I always say read the book, and this is no exception. Thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog and my merch store on Spreadshop. Happy reading, murder bookies, and trust your gut. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack and drink information, but the last time we saw her trilogy is found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hussainna and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Coos County DA Joe Frazier declined to try (laughs) McMuffin.